Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to my podcast, which doesn't have a name. It's the Nameless Podcast, but it's a show about cool people who did cool stuff, and we're looking for a good name for it, something that really says what it's about. I'm wondering if either of you all have ideas. <laughs> oh, cool humans who did things that were also kind of cool. I do like Sipawoodius. It is. It does have a nice ring to it. Sipawoodius, mm-hmm. it is. So... My guest this week is none other than Garrison Davis, who is, among other things, the co-host of the very optimistic show, It Could Happen Here. Garrison, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty optimistic. All right. Whenever, whenever we talk about post-civilization, it has to be optimistic, or else why are you thinking about it? <laughs> yeah, I actually agree with that, yeah. I know, <laughs> you, you, are, you, are, uh, you are a wizard's foremost expert on post-civilization, if, if, you, oh, yeah. if, if you didn't know. It's true. Uh, and we've got Sophie Lichterman as well, who's a producer extraordinaire. Sophie, did you know that extraordinaire is an annoying word to spell? I just appreciate your effort then. All right. Well, thanks. I even got it right on the first time. That's amazing. That's extraordinary. One time I spelled spelled bourgeois right on the first time. Wow. Whoa. I just have never tried to spell it again. I want to quit while I'm ahead. Fair. So today is part two of our two-part series on the public universal friend, which is a bunch of easy words to spell, who is a genderless prophet of revolutionary era New England, who is a sort of cool person doing sort of cool stuff. Very cool along gender lines, sort of middling cool in terms of being the head of a religious sect. So let's talk about the end of the world. All of our interests are colliding. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So Puff only had one doomsday prediction, as far as I can tell. And it came and went pretty early in their career as a prophet. Yeah, that's that's the problem with making a prediction like four years is that you're probably going to live to see it. Um, you got you got to make it further further than that so you get enough enough steam to carry you on through the, the rest of your life. See, you'd think that, but as far as I can tell, basically everyone who predicts the end of the world, you're not wrong. They they, they just <laughs> it just keeps working. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. So they predicted. Puff predicted that the world would end sometime around April 1st, 1780. April Fool's. It's the JK day. (laughs) Puff wasn't the only person who assumed it was the end times. Millenarian fever was all the rage, and a lot of people thought that the American Revolution was basically the harbinger of the second coming of Christ. Well, good thing we don't deal with millenarianism anymore. I know. Well, fortunately, in case we do have to deal with it, Oh, we do. I finally learned what the word where it comes from. Well, would you tell? I, I always assumed, because I'm not the smartest person that's ever lived, I used to assume that basically it was just like people were freaked out around the year 1000. Yeah, like, it's his mill, so yeah, you would think so. Yeah, we're out of years, the end is coming, because they like couldn't imagine a fourth it's like, digit. It's, 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 like, it's like the original Y2K. Exactly, Y1K. <laughs> 
you're reading from the same script I am. What's going on? <laughs> but so like most people who are listening to this probably already know this, but all of these Christian end time cults believed that there was supposed to be a big fuck off battle between good and evil. And then Christ would rule on earth for a thousand years. Yeah. Cause that is kind millennia. of in the Bible. Oh, ah, yeah. Yeah. I see it. Yeah. That's where millenarian comes from. And good thing that's no longer a big part of our modern politics. Yeah, no one would base their political <laughs> ideology based on that these days. No. Nope. Definitely not. I would, however, be a hypocrite for judging people for thinking the end was coming in their lifetimes. Sure. I host another podcast that you all can check out called Live Like the World is Dying, which is about community-minded preparedness. And I write on a podcast called It Could Happen Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Everyone's thinking this stuff. And the thing is, is that like all of these people who are thinking the world's going to end, they're not always wrong. I mean, worlds end in different ways. Societies end different ways of being come to an end. Even before you get into sort of multiverse stuff about whether or not most timeline here's the most wingnut thing I think. I I, I, I know, Stephen, I know exactly what you're talking about, though. I, I Yes. All of the people who thought that we came really close to nuclear Armageddon during the Cold War are like seen as like silly now, but they were right. We came really close to nuclear Armageddon in the Cold uh-huh. War. And we just traded it for another looming cataclysmic. Yeah. Threat. And maybe we'll maybe we'll skirt through this one too, you know? And maybe we'll get a new one in a hundred years. Who knows? Yeah. So a bunch of these revolutionary war assholes, they're not just fighting for no taxation without representation. They're fighting to usher in a thousand years of peace, glory, and happiness in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Time's a flat circle. Yeah. And, okay, I'll be real. I think prophecy is fucking boring and makes for hack writing. Yeah. Whenever I see prophecies in fiction, I'm like, oh, here we go. And I roll my eyes. And if I run across a chosen one, I usually put the book down. <laughs> uh, like <laughs> Harry fucking Potter, whatever. Speaking of JK Day. I don't know whether I even want to say no offense to all you Harry Potter fans out there. No, they they yeah. they can take the offense. Yeah. I'm not saying don't read it. I'm saying people might, whatever. We're talking about trans history here. So the public universal friend figured they were prophesied to herald the end of the world because there was some like Quaker stuff that interpreted some Bible stuff to mean that when women started doing prophecy shit, it was a sign of the end times. Uh, another place in the Bible talks about 42 months. So Public Universal Friend was like, great, 42 months after I'm on Earth as Puff, boom, apocalypse. April 1780 or so. April coming and going was seems like it was probably pretty stressful. But they got kind of lucky for a moment because on May 19th, 1780, New England had a, quote, dark day when ash from forest fires filled the sky from New Jersey to Canada and day turned to night. Oh, I love it when that happens. Yeah, Garrison lives in the Pacific Northwest, I think. I sure do. (laughs) So, as related by a soldier named Joseph Plum Martin. We were here, New Jersey, at the time the dark day happened. The fowls went to their roosts. The cocks crew and the whippoorwills sung their usual serenade. The people had to light candles in their houses to enable to see, to carry on their usual business. The night was uncommonly dark as the day was. And, and this is where it was less dark. Up north, it was way worse. You needed candles outside. So everyone was like, oh, it's the apocalypse. And some people were excited. Some people were probably worried. It actually seems like a lot of people were excited because millenarianism. Yeah. Um, and also their end of the world meant a thousand years of peace. I have a really different. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> so the, the ash lifts at the end of the day. And spoiler, the world does not come to an end. It just keeps going. Yeah. But not for Susanna Potter a universal friend, because she died on the dark day. So a few days later, according to some sources and doubted by other sources, because people kept trying to claim that Puff claimed to be Jesus, but completely likely, Puff tried to resurrect their friend from the dead, a la Lazarus. The attempt did not succeed. Yeah, they rarely do. Yeah, it's like once, I think. Um, Actually, I guess doctors do it every day. But this doesn't really damage the friend's reputation much for whatever reason. The group only grew after the world didn't end. And, okay, my hypothesis is that people come for the doomsday and stay for the community. I mean, yeah, that is, that is how a lot of cults work. 
even like modern doomsday cults kind of function on a similar on a similar level and i mean that's how that's how a lot of like churches work too like they people keep going because it's one of the only available forms of culture that people feel like they that's like accessible and it's a built-in sense of community in an already very alienated world so that's why so much of the world or so much of the states at least like runs on these church communities um because that's like you know, like that's that's what's something I wanted to talk about in terms of like mutual aid networks. For a lot of the country, a lot of what we could consider like mutual aid or like community, like that type of like community support, is based out of church hubs. Yeah. Um, and not not all of them are like shitty towards queer people. Not all of them are racist. Like some of them are like actually fine. Um, some of them are very not fine. But like it 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 definitely is not just one or the other. Yeah. So it's it is it is it is an interesting thing on in terms of like how much of that community aspect is so important to keep the religious machine going. No, totally. And I mean and and people need that. People need a sense of community. And so there is a lot being provided that is not being provided elsewhere. So Puff currently has a cult of hundreds of people, several churches across two states. They're living in a mansion provided by one of their followers. They read dreams, they preach boring shit. Things are going pretty well for them. So in the 1780s, Puff decides to take this shit to the center of revolutionary American culture, Philadelphia, the city that does not actually seem very important in modern context, but was very important at this time. And they make a whole bunch of trips over the course of like eight years, and they set up a little satellite base outside of the city. But Philly, Philly does not like them. Not because of what they had to say. They say the same shit as everyone else is saying. But because basically they're breaking the gender rules. When Puff is in cult leader mode, I kind of don't like them. But when they're in persecuted for not being a woman mode, I'm completely on Puff's side. Yeah. And it's basically Twitter that's fucking with them. Because this whole democratization thing that everyone is obsessed with during the Revolutionary War, it turns newspapers from something that talks at people from on high to something that is meant to be a conversation between people. So now you have the... You fucking discourse and combine discourse with a non-binary preacher and you get drama. <laughs> Again, time is a flat circle. <laughs> as I and so, yeah, as I as I mentioned before, the revolution kind of cemented the like manly man, America man, and then threw the strong women of America back into the cage of patriarchy out with the old system where you're privileged based on class and noble lineage and in with the new system where you're privileged based along lines of race and gender. And another thing that I hadn't thought about too much before doing this reading about the American Revolution, about democracy and republic and blah, blah, blah. So in a monarchy, the only moral upstandingness that society demands is of the nobility, because that's the only one that matters because they make the decisions, because the rabble don't rule. This is I'm speaking in rude exaggerations here. But in a republic, you've got citizens. And since they're ostensibly in charge, it suddenly matters that they're virtuous and shit. So all of a sudden you can be way more controlling of everyone because everyone has to be virtuous. And by the standards of the time, gender bending, not a virtue. So people are not stoked on Puff and their entourage. Literally when they first show up, people are so offended by the masculine clothing of the women in the group, which I I think they were all wearing dresses, but just not the right kind of dresses. Yeah. The entourage, they couldn't find a place to stay. Eventually, they found a widow who took them in, and a crowd gathered outside the house and threw rocks and bricks at it because they were rioting over a non-binary preacher and somewhat androgynous women showing up in town. But a Methodist church let them speak on their first visit, and the place was so crowded that people were turned away. They only made one convert in the first trip, but they made some friends, and they came back to larger and larger crowds. And again, so most of the people who are joining at this point are now Quakers who've been kicked out of the church for supporting the revolution because... The pacifism of Quakers, not only can you not go fight, but you also can't pay taxes to the revolutionary government because that's like taking sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. By 1787, the newspapers are attacking Puff, uh, calling them crazy, calling them a blasphemer, accusing them of all kinds of various crimes. Angry mobs show up everywhere Puff stays or speaks. And again, not because of what they're saying, but because of how they're dressed, because things don't change. One thing that the newspapers, really the letter sections, all agreed on, though, is that Puff was really hot. <laughs> they all, yeah. I'm, I'm good that at least that is, 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 
is noted within the history books. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's always very important. Um, that, uh, they all gender friend wrong, and page after page talk about their hair falling down in black ringlets and how beautiful their faces or whatever. Uh huh. Someone that they perceive as a woman dressed like a man and beautiful and preaching. It's all too much for them. They can't handle it. And like, I think one of the reasons that so many people hate trans people is because they're attracted to us and it fucks with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even the the long hair falling down to to their shoulders, that was actually a masculine thing. Women mostly kept their hair hidden under caps, except some rich ladies who kept it piled up on top of their heads. But long hair hanging down, that's a man's haircut. Hmm. And so public conjecture about whether or not women, or in this case, people presumed to be women are hot, this always has ulterior motives, right? Most transparently, they're saying, well, this person can't be non-binary. I want to fuck them. But it's also tied into the narrative that Puff and their congregation were all seducers, planning to lead people astray with their evil, evil attractiveness. I mean, me too, but <laughs> I, I don't think that was what they were interested in. Yeah, it's really kind of groomer discourse. But um, yeah, basically. But just funny, because almost everyone who joins the congregation does so with their families. They, they bring their spouses, mm. their siblings, whatever. But the public narrative is that this evil bitch is going to get women to leave their husbands and men to leave their wives, which happens, but it's usually because people didn't want to be in those marriages anyway. And the only like religious complaint that anyone really came up with is that men shouldn't subordinate themselves to women. So even their religious complaint is still just about gender. And they're convinced either Puff and all their followers are delusional or they're the inner circle are grifters. These are the only two possibilities. And to be fair, I think you could say that about like every fucking Christian denomination going on at this time to various degrees of accuracy. I mean, that is kind of the classical thing with, yeah, that is like one of one of the oldest coin tosses. Yeah. But what's funny is that the Society for Universal Friends wasn't either of these things, as far as I can tell. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, I mean, yeah. depending on how you want to judge uh, Puff's interpretation of, of their own identity as a, a divine being or whatever, but not a, not a grifter, um, certainly not to any kind of scale and... I don't know. Maybe it's like a little bit of each, but mostly not of none of either. And the thing that I find so interesting about them getting like run the fuck out of Philly is that in these rural backwaters, everyone's like, well, this person wears weird clothes and has a really fucking weird name, but whatever. I like what they have to say. And then the center of culture and politics of the new world is like, no, our little brains are breaking. And I feel like this like says a lot about how people today still make assumptions that rural communities are inherently backwards. Yeah. As a rural queer person, I, I like pointing this out a lot. I don't know. So dealing with all this bullshit, all the angry mobs and shit, it's too much. And Puff's fourth and final trip to Philly was a momentary thing under the radar, just passing through. The city successfully drove them out, not by using CR gas, but if today you wanted to drive non-binary preachers out of your city, you might choose to use CR gas. I mean, actually, you shouldn't do either. And if you do, you should use CS gas. But, you know. Yeah, oh, you mean you mean this? this, this oh, I this thought thing. that was a water bottle. But yes, that is. I mean, it, it, oh, is, it is a water, water bottle. Whoa. Okay. So Garrison is holding up a, a water bottle that is printed like a, uh, is it CR gas or CS gas? This is CS. Oh, okay. This is a 40 millimeter powder dispersion round made by Defense Technology. One of the, I'm not going to pretend of, like defense one technology of our, is a, nope. One of our sponsors. Nope, this isn't behind the bastards. <laughs> We're wholesome here. Wholesome. One of our enemies, defense technology. That's right. Yeah. Holding one of our friends, tap water. <laughs> Publicly available, more or less free, and should be protected. I mean, I feel like the, I, I feel, I've tried really hard to buy tear gas before, and it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should deregulate tear gas to make it available to, for civilian purchase because then people can start using it and things would be more interesting because uh, right now only cops can buy it in most cases. Um, so if it becomes a public utility, I think some real progress could happen. So CS gas on tap in every home. Is that what you're saying? Yes, <laughs> yes that's what I'm saying. I rarely look around 2022 and think to myself, society is not currently interesting enough. But to be fair, things could always be more interesting. They certainly could. 
And you know who probably will or won't make things more interesting are the rest of the sponsors of today's show. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and we are back. And our heroes have just been driven with rocks and bricks out of the city for being Yeah, I was nuclear. I was I was wondering if they got stoned at all because that is definitely I'm not aware of them actually suffering physical violence as a result of uh their gender presentation. So, it's better in colonial America. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so they say, "All right, fuck it. Let's go rural and let's go to the edge of colonial control, what they consider the edge of civilization, Western New York." Sure. Starting in the mid-80s, Puff's crew started heading out west to the frontier to scope out spots to start a settlement. They sold all their shit, all the like meeting houses in Rhode Island and Connecticut or whatever, and they bought some land, uh, 14,000 acres. In 1788, a few families go ahead and, and they start building. Then, on February 19th, 1790, Puff and Puff's buds, about 60 families in all, head out to the frontier in wagons and treacherous roads, doing the work of colonization. And for all their anti-racist principles, I mean, in the 30 years or so after independence, the U.S. expanded westward so fast that it stole more territory than it had stolen in the entire 200 years prior. And the indigenous people who sided with the British crown were probably right about which party to back. So off they go into the quote-unquote wilderness and set up a settlement called, okay, they're really original namers. It's called Friends Settlement. 
<laughs> they really did get one naming convention and be like, yep, this is the one. Yep, we, we just go literal. Yeah. And so they're over in the Finger Lakes chunk of Western New York in an area that colonial armies had laid waste to the Haudenosaunee on. The, the folks who had, had sided with the British and they had destroyed entire communities and fields and shit. And it was those soldiers who came back with detailed maps of where there was fertile soil that spurred the push of settlers into the area. Mm. Uh, but I will say, it's, it's easy to sit in judgment of people like Puff who are well-meaning and go off and settle stolen land, growing crops in the ashes of genocide. But I'm, I'm a white settler too. I live on Massawomack land. And in my head, I'm like, well, I didn't do the stealing. It was stolen hundreds of years ago. But I live with the privilege that came from it having been stolen by people who look like me. And I'm not the best person to articulate any of the stuff I'm talking about right now, but I think it's worth thinking about whenever, one, we should be aware of people are not going off into like virgin territory or whatever, and two, like how we sit, you know, hundreds of years later in that sense. So that's where the public universal friend goes. Traveling preacher time is over. Now it's time for everyone to live in perfect bliss and harmony under God's law, aka Puff's law. But they fucked up the land purchase because the shit was hotly contested, super shady. They're in court constantly for it, which is like funny because I don't think of like when I'm like, ah, oh, we're off to go settle the wilderness. I don't think like, and I'm going to be in court constantly about exactly where the boundaries are of my property or whatever. They buy their own land three times from three different people. They clear the forest. They plant crops. They live off of bottled milk in hard times. And like all rugged frontiersmen, this is a story that gets talked about a lot. People definitely talk about this part. They subsist off of government subsidies when there's famine. And everyone out involved in the new land rush starts going hungry because more people are going than they can possibly grow food in time. And I don't think there's any shame in needing help, but I just think I, I point it out because you have this like rugged individualist myth. Amer the... American doing it yourself, traveling the barren wasteland where... No soul has ever stepped before to, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. None of that, none of that is accurate yeah. at all. Yeah. With a map of where all the fertile fields are because you've destroyed all of the ones that were owned by the other people. And then as soon as you get there, you turn around and the government gives you handouts in order to help you do this work. Yeah. By 1790, there's 260 people. By 1791, there's 378. And it's the largest white settlement in Western New York. Hmm. And... Some sources say that they were friendly with the indigenous people of the area and defended them, but I, I don't know whether that means physically or verbally. And I see vague references to how the Universal Friends stuck up for them here and there in court, but I can't find any details of that. And I think everyone either wants to vilify Puff for being an evil crossdresser or wants to heroize Puff for being a virtuous trans ancestor. So it's really hard to figure out what's what, right? Yeah. Um, the queer icon crowd wants to downplay their colonialness. And I mean... I know I want Puff to have been doing good stuff. I get really sad when I'm like, and then here's their dumb rules and then here's their dumb fucking whiteness and all this shit, but who knows? They did go along in 1794 to help sign some treaties with the Haudenosaunee that were like, they were there in like a, in a reasonably good sense and they were personally well received by the Haudenosaunee, um, but I don't fucking know overall. In addition to fucking up their land purchase, they also fucked up the communal living thing because they're Americans and they care about capital P property. So when they pooled their funds to buy the parcel of land, they then parceled it back out to people based on how much they contributed. And why did this fuck everyone up? Because gentrification! The price of land skyrocketed. The rich people were suddenly able to sell out everyone else. So they did. All the rich people conspired and took control of almost all the property they had bought. And then they leveraged it and they sold it and they all became real estate prospectors. <laughs> this is not Puff. This is like the fucking judge and all these other fucking assholes. Okay. And they made banks selling all this stolen land like they brought back like 10 times their own investment in only a couple of years. <laughs> Tell me this is a story that you've heard before. It's like a, if a house full of mostly white queers moved to a non-white gentrifying neighborhood <laughs> and then the rich ones among them flipped the house a couple years in and fucked over everyone else. Yeah. And then the whole neighborhood's full of Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's what the first non-binary cult in America did. Yeah, that is um not much has changed. That seems to be the theme of the theme of this episode is that not much of queer culture has changed. Yeah. At least 
white queer culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know whether it's changed, whether non-white queer culture has changed. So I feel like there's one lesson I've learned while researching this show. It's that you've got to rob the rich people. They, they can't just stay rich and be like, oh, it's cool. We'll all just act like equals. The Paris Commune should have robbed the bank and the Society of Universal Friends should have said, if you want to be equals, then you got to be fucking equals and have the land held in trust between all of us. You don't got to kill the rich. You don't even have to punish them. You just have to stop them being richer than other people. That's that's the lesson that I've learned so far while researching this show. Yeah, or else eventually they'll bulldoze all that low-income housing to put up a fancy coffee shop. Yeah, and a a four or one of those one of those four-story apartment buildings. Well, actually, what they built was uh, the first grist mill and timber mill. Ah, aha. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and so the judge guy Potter, he put up most of the money, and he was if if anyone was grifting this whole time, it was probably him. He probably wasn't grifting. He probably was like, okay, whatever. I mean, he was a judge. It's it's yeah yeah. Um. So soon, him and his sons own fifty five thousand acres, and seventeen investors get the whole chunk of society land. They own all of Friends Settlement, and everyone else is basically fucked. I feel like that shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be allowed to own land. Especially that much. Yeah. Are you saying that people shouldn't be allowed to own more than they use of land? Pretty much. Or, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't shouldn't own in the first place, but... Yeah. Yeah. yeah with a different conception of ownership, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, really importantly, friend settlement, they could have been Frenton. Frenton <laughs> would have been cool. Friendtown. Yeah. Town of friends. Okay, so so Puff and company, they move again, this time to get away from those greedy assholes, and they settle a new place called New Jerusalem, or sometimes just Jerusalem. Okay. Which is deviating a little bit from their naming standard, but... Yeah, not a, not a giant fan, though. No. No, I'm not a big fan. So here's another um, thing that will sound unfamiliar to you. Puff wouldn't sign their dead names to any of the documents. Based... So their life companion, who never gets called that, but was clearly that, Sarah Richards, signs for the whole thing. And then Sarah Richards, the second in charge, she goes and dies of being alive in the 18th century. I guess she's 36 and she's in ill health, so she dies. At the new spot, they build Puff a house, and then all the single celibate women live there together. Uh And and because Puff was so otherworldly, they didn't eat with everyone else. They took their meals privately with another woman, their new second-in-command. <laughs> uh-huh. So it really, really sounds like I'm describing a gay 18th century cult. Yes, it they, does. They might have been, but if they were, they probably were less the queer orgies type and more the secret gay marriages type. Yeah, I mean, with their celibacy stuff, it's really interesting because who knows if they would have considered lesbian sex to actually be sex at all. Like it's I I I wonder how I'm I'm not I'm not like a sex historian um but I I, I wonder how that would have been framed. No, I I don't know. I think I think it would have still been seen bad, but I'm not sure because their problem was less procreation. Like they are actually instead of saying marital sex is for procreation, they were saying marital sex is a safe container within which to hold your horrible, horrible, evil, lust, carnal desires. Okay, okay. So if you're going to fuck someone, you should fuck your spouse or whatever, right? That, that's at least what, as far as I can tell, Puff was very consistent about publicly. So they, they go off and they, they have um, New Jerusalem. And even in the fucking woods, they can't get away from judgment. People would come and visit the weird, quote, lady preacher, like basically as a tourist attraction and write essays about how they, they don't like Puff. Um, once again, not for religious doctrine, just for not being ladylike and sometimes for like not eating dinner with them. Yeah, it's it's just like queer freak show type stuff. Yeah. And then they would also write complaining about how sometimes has, husbands weren't the head of the households. Sometimes the wives didn't have children. A lot of places claim that the whole society died out because they didn't have any children at all. But that's actually not true that uh, they did have children. It wasn't a total celibacy thing. They just didn't have fuck off numbers of children. Like they didn't have, most of them didn't have like 13 children. So the average household in the society had four children and the average household elsewhere in the area had seven. 
And most okay. most parents had their kids before joining. If you joined without kids and then had kids in the cult, you would end up with 2.5 of them. Well, average. You wouldn't theoretically end up with half a kid. I mean, who knows? Yeah, and actually, there, and so there's all these stories also about unmarried folks living together, which sort of throws a wrench in the whole like how they viewed celibacy thing. And there's also story, stories about men not giving a shit if their wives had kids with other men. And it's like, these are thrown as like, tiny little practically footnotes in all these history books. And it's so annoying because I'm like, you're describing a gay poly cult. Just fucking do it. Just tell me. <laughs> tell me what happened. Commit to the bit. Yeah. And Puff was a disciplinarian, but a goofy one. One guy, might have been a boy, climbed a tree to peek into a, a women's bedroom at the main house where the celibate women all lived. And he fell and he broke his shoulder. And when he and when he was confronted about how he broke his shoulder, he was like, oh, I was peeking into the windows. So, so Puff made him wear a cowbell around his neck for months. That's funny. Um, one woman laughed too much, which was impious of her, and had her mouth sealed up with strips of paper temporarily. Oh, no. Yeah. And one man was forced to wear a woman's cap for a while in public to humiliate him, and I have no idea what his offense was. <laughs> Forced feminization. Forced feminization. Yes, it's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, classic. But like, I, I, this feels like the cult leader version of those people who take pictures of their... Instagram pictures of their dogs holding up like shame signs, you know? Uh, it's it's cringy, but it's not as bad as a lot of other things that are happening in the area. Like, this idiosyncratic discipline probably makes them one of the least authoritarian sects in America. Yeah. It's also possible that none of the disciplining happened. There's so many people who are committed to following to like, like people are just like committed to proving that Puff is like a monster. And so there's so much shit written about Puff in, in print. And also in these rumors, there's rumors that I believe sometimes come from people who later left the, the group that both men and women were sneaking into Puff's bed at night. Once again, tiny throwaway lines. Yeah. The settlement lasted for decades, but never grew. It just slowly declined. Um, they were too isolated to gain new recruits. Existing believers started to drift away, especially the rich men, basically the people who had a lot to lose. And it wasn't even like most of the men left, but almost everyone who left were men. One guy, one of the real estate prospecting Potter boys, managed to get the friend arrested because, okay, so, so Puff gave Puff's sister a horse but the sister was married to a Potter boy. So then Puff asked for the horse back and the sister gave it back, but didn't ask the husband first. So that's stealing because yeah, okay. the wife's property is were, the husband's. Was the husband's property, yeah. Yeah. And Puff refused to cooperate with the warrants at all at first because it was in their dead name. And finally, they like went down to the courthouse and posted their own bail under the name of ye universal friend commonly called Jemima Wilkinson which was how they basically handled it every time they were like forced to use their dead name. Eventually in 1799, another warrant went out for the public universal friend, this time for the charge of blasphemy. Basically, people were like, Puff is claiming to be Jesus. And Puff was probably not claiming to be Jesus. Puff was kind of into the like, sometimes was sort of neither confirm nor deny being Jesus, but mostly was like, I am Jesus's messenger. But people figured if they claimed that Puff claimed to be Jesus, they would get more headway. Yeah. And Puff didn't want to go to court or jail, so Puff refused to let them for a while. The first time someone came to arrest Puff, Puff fucked off at a gallop and outran their pursuer. Based. The second time, two men showed up at the friend, at friend's house to arrest them, and the celibate women who lived there surrounded the men, ripped their clothes, and physically threw them out of the house. <laughs> cool. Uh, eventually, it took a posse of 30 men to arrest Puff. Almost all of them were people who had the men who had left the society. They broke down the door of Puff's house with a fucking axe in the middle of the night. They found Puff in too poor health to travel. And so Puff was like, all right, fine. Look, y'all fucking win. I'll turn myself in in the morning. And they were like, oh, yeah, OK, you can turn yourself in in the morning. <laughs> but you know what won't turn you in? Unless you it's can't the promise State. that. <laughs> you know what won't snitch on you and get you taken away by a posse? 
if any if any of the ads that follow are likely to turn you in, we're sorry. And you can send your complaints to at our right away on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Yep. Who totally will get the notification. <laughs> <laughs> and here's some ads. Ta-da. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. And Puff actually does go turn themselves in in the, in the morning, I believe. Uh, the charge is blasphemy. And basically, everyone is mostly mad that Puff is upsetting. Even their like, legal court stuff is saying that Puff is upsetting the proper social order of who's supposed to be in charge. But there's only one problem with their case against Puff. Blasphemy is not a crime. Even back then in New York, blasphemy, not a crime. And it took a year for the indictment to fall through. Dear God. <laughs> Even though it's literally not a crime. Like if someone showed up and was like, you, ma'am, have painted your bedroom red. And I was like, no. And then I got charged, dragged off to court. Uh, so eventually, but while they were in court and the judges were like, this isn't even a crime. We're sorry. Do you want to give a sermon instead of a defense? And Puff was like, I do. And stood up and gave a sermon. And everyone in court agreed it was a perfectly fine sermon. Because at the end of the day, Puff is not theologically radical at all. Yeah. I mean, it'd be cooler if they were, you know. 
But so then the anti-puff faction of these rich, politically connected men, they keep doing other shit in their quest to destroy the society and return the rule of men. And this is like, this is about that. It's also a land grab, but these are the people who've already grabbed fuck tons of land. This is like, they're mad that they were emasculated by not being in charge for a while. They sue over land disputes. Some of it's petty. Some of it ends up evicting a bunch of society folks from their homes, leaves people in debtor's prison. And the, the fate of Jerusalem itself was taken into court thanks to more fuckery and patriarchal interpretations of property law. Because the signer, Sarah Richards, who is dead now, had been the legal property owner. And her kid, Eliza's husband, Enoch, tried to grab all the property. And I just want to take a moment here to appreciate how cool the name Enoch is. I mean, Enoch is, is yeah. a, class, a classically cool name. Yeah. Love it. Shout out to all the Enochs listening. You've got a cool mm-hmm. name. Shout out to the Book of Enoch. Which I totally know it is. Is that a Bible right. thing? Kind of. Okay. It's the Bible, but weirder. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Ever heard of like Enochian magic? No. It's the stuff John Dee practiced. It's based on the Book of Enoch. It's like, it's, 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 it's the weirdest you can go while still kind of under Judaism or Christianity. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds alley adjacent to me. So this Enoch, no good, trying to fuck over everyone and basically steal a bunch of shit. And so the society argues that Sarah Richards, yes, had signed the paperwork, but it was just in trust for the society and for Puff. And it took a fucking like decade or maybe, I don't know, some long ass number of years in court, tons of appeals. The society wins and they get to keep their town and it bankrupts them and trust is like broken and tons of people have left and Everyone's upset. It doesn't destroy the society, but it deals at a blow from which it never really recovers. And Puff was 43 years old when they died in 1819 from heart disease after years of infirmity. The, the body they were in was older than that, like 66 years old total. And their followers put Puff's body in a box full of lime in the basement just in case, you know, Puff might get resurrected. <laughs> they were like, this is not happening again. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so after a couple years, when Puff doesn't come back from the dead, two men carry the body off and bury it in an unmarked grave, which is a Quaker tradition. And supposedly the two men passed along the location through generations, each telling their firstborn where the body is buried. The Dowingston Republican, which is a newspaper, said the following in their obituary for Puff about how the followers had started a commune. On this occasion, much mischief was done in the community. Men left their wives, and we believe in some instances women, their husbands, to follow her into the wilderness. One of the requisites for initiation into her church was fasting for 40 days, during which time a specific allowance of flour only was allowed to each person, barely sufficient to keep a soul and body together, which in some cases produced delirium. These particulars are gleaned from the wreck of our earliest recollections and may not be in every particular strictly correct. (laughs) <laughs> the newspaper's like, we might have this wrong, but we think, we think it was bad. I mean, I guess that's what I'm doing. I'm saying like, I don't know if this is right. And then that newspaper quotes another newspaper, which is unnamed, about Puff's death. And again, continues to misgender them. She, a few moments previous to her death, placed herself in her chapel and called in her disciples one by one and gave each a solemn admiration, then raised her hands, closed her eyes and gave up the ghost. Thus, the second wonder of the Western country has made her final exit. Much curiosity has been excited since her departure. The roads leading to her mansion were, for a few days after her death, literally filled with crowds of people who had been or were going to see the friend, exclamation mark, all caps. Her mansion stands on a barren heath, admits the solitudes of the wilderness at some distance from this settlement. I wonder what the first curiosity of the Western country was, but... Yeah, they mentioned that they're the second, so yeah, that does that does leave one to question. Yeah, if any if anyone knows, tell me. Not at I write okay, just actually at me, just <laughs> Killjoy. Your other ad that you check more often. Ah, yes, yeah. yes, totally. <laughs> I have my notifications turned off on I write okay. This is a funny joke. It's always funny because the person who I'm talking about isn't here, and half the audience might not have any idea what I'm talking about. That's what makes it funny. That's what jokes are based on. That's what you call an LOL. 
Ah, is that what the youth is, call is it? That, is, is that what the kids say, Sophie? <laughs> you really tapped into that Gen Z TikTok culture there, Sophie. Thanks, Gare. <laughs> so speaking of Gen Z in no way at all, the Society of Universal Friends, they carry on for a couple decades longer and slowly start shrinking. And then they, they die away completely in the middle of the 19th century, which, which makes sense. Their beliefs outside gender weren't different from anyone else's. And Puff had really been holding it together. A couple dudes showed up afterwards and claimed to have been told by the spirit of Puff to take control. They're like, yeah, like, uh, I'm supposed to be in charge now, right? What's up? Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> Sure, sure, buddy. Yeah, one of them stuck around for a couple of years before everyone was like, you're a fucking grifter and kicked him out. Um, and Puff did write into their will that all the poor members be taken care of forever. So like all the like basically money of the church was put into a trust to take care of the people who couldn't you know, take care of themselves. And even in their will, they tried their hardest to avoid their dead name. The first sentence said that it was the last will and testament of the person called the universal friend who in the year 1776 was called Jemima Wilkinson. And ever since that time, the universal friend, and it's signed with an X so that they didn't have to write ah, their name out. Wonderful. I know. And people talk about the sect like it's this failure because it died out. But I don't think they gave a shit about that. They they recruited enough people for their new town. They set up their new town and then they lived their lives and then they died. And they succeeded against a world that was like fucking dead set on seeing them destroyed. They survived being driven out of Philly by an angry mob. They survived decades of attempts to have their own township stolen from them by angry dudes. People tried to get Puff thrown in prison for charges that don't even exist. And whatever life they wanted to lead, they let it. Maybe it was gay, maybe it was ace, maybe it was celibate romantic, maybe the men and women were both just tired of bullshit gender roles have been foisted on them and wanted to have quiet religious lives. They lived in relative peace for decades doing whatever the fuck their thing was. Any verdicts, Gare or Sophie, on what their thing was? I mean, yeah, I feel, feel, feel like it'd be wrong to come down hard one way or, or another. It's like they were definitely doing their thing. Their thing could be a lot of different things. Like, Aspects of their, I mean, obviously they were queer in like the gender sense, but I mean, they definitely tried to create their own thing outside the regular confounds of society that they found restricting. So they're queer in that ge general sense as well. Whether that related to how they intersect with like sexuality, it, it's challenging because so much of their stuff is around like celibacy, right? But just who who knows who knows what that actually means? Yeah, totally. Like within within their context. Totally. It could have been like asexual romantic, you know, like, yeah, like it, it could be so many things. If I if I were to put my money on a spot, I would claim that Puff was uh, probably asexual and um, or celibate, whether or not asexual, but in romantic relationships with some of these people, you know? Yeah, but I, I don't know. I'm not saying that is what happened. So and they managed two different types of escapes from patriarchy, which are both really cool. One, Puff escaped from the confine of the label of woman and took on what in a modern context would be considered a trans non-binary identity. But two, they and the Society of Universal Friends also dramatically expanded the role of, of women, the women in the group, while still staying within the social category of women. They dressed like sure, men. Yeah. Some of them took men's names. They went unmarried. They preached. They owned property, all of that. And and I, I bring this up because these are often presented as opposite goals. You either escape womanhood or you embrace it and expand what's possible within it. But you can just fucking do both. And those are not diametrically opposed. No. no, those things can go concurrently. Yeah. Gender is not that is not a strict set of rules determined by God. Yeah. Turns out it's something that we invent because we're our own gods and we can create gods at will. Yeah. Yeah. One final mystery. A lot of the society's history is buried by time, although we have also a lot of other, we, I don't, I don't have it. Various historical societies have a lot of the history. Um, and at one point, a descendant sued for a trunk full of papers and then kept or destroyed some of them before returning the rest. Cool. And okay. I like, to, I like to think that these lost documents are proof about the queer sex cult, but they <laughs> probably weren't. They're just like burning a whole bunch of like... <laughs> erotic poetry yeah i'm gonna go with you magpie yeah. i agree proof of the queer sex cult 100 this yeah. is fact <laughs> and in 
And that's the tale of the public universal friend who wound up way more interesting, but also less perfect than I've been led to believe when I started this research. And yeah, which I guess is the truth about basically most people that people heroize way messier, way less perfect, way more interesting. But it's it, they're always worth considering. I think no one. I mean, some people should be wholly discounted <laughs> for, <laughs> for what they do. But yeah. I think the people that we're talking about on this podcast are like, yeah, you shouldn't. Obviously, we're like against the idea of a hero. Yeah. But if even if someone has some things that you don't like, like all of the rules for their church, they're still worth considering within the context of what they were actually going against, right? Like what, what systems they were pushing back on and how they were trying to deal with questions around like identity and expression and systems of patriarchy. Um, because sometimes it's hard to go from zero to 60. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you ready to start a sect, Garrison? I've considered it for a while, definitely. Um, I mean, I've always wanted to start a secret society, uh, and I may or may not have started multiple secret societies. But no, always it's it's always it's always interested me as as an idea. One time, I um, I uh, fictionally, like, literally created a fiction zine about a uh, secret society, and distributed it. And there was an address that said, if you want to know more about this secret society, contact the following address. And within a year, that house burned down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You. Good for you. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, so I just wow. got to start. I just, I, I just got to start doing that and putting the address of my enemies. <laughs> on that. <laughs> oh. Sophie, what about you? Are you going to start a sect? And if so, what would the tenants be? I mean, I, I if I would, I wouldn't tell tell anybody on this podcast. But Garrison, oh, I do fair. have a list of addresses for you. <laughs> the earth isn't dying. It's being killed. Oh. <laughs> Those who do the killing of names and addresses. Garrison, do you have any pluggables for us at the end here? Um... Let's see. Well, if you want to hear me talk about random parts of queerness and gender on occasion, I will probably do so at certain points on It Could Happen Here, the show that I co-write some episodes of. Uh, I will be tabling a whole bunch of weird, weird, weird books and, and zines at, at Portland's Red Pride. If you want to learn more about that, you can use the Internet. Um, yeah. And pictures of my new cat on at, at Hungry Bowtie. Margaret, don't you have a book coming out? I, Is it available for pre-order, perhaps? Maybe. It might be by the time cool. you listen to this. It's uh, called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. It comes out from AK Press on September 20th, and pre-orders may or may not be up. And pre-orders matter uh, way too much into the weird like algorithmic metric-run world that we live in. Just, just saying. Um, yeah. yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy. You can follow me on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. And I have another podcast. It's called Live Like the World is Dying. And it's about prepper stuff. I mean, not prepper, a community and individual preparedness in these uncertain times. That was like a legal disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some for some very obvious reason, a lot of people don't love the term prepper. Uh, yeah, I mean, the term prepper has a lot of connotations, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That is that is very cool. I'm just I'm just happy to continue the tradition of I guess it's it's not quite plagiarizing zines. I just they're just written by other people. I'll I'll, I'll have I'll have at least one zine that I wrote on my table. All right, all right. But it, most most of them are from other people because I'm too busy writing podcasts. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It'd be like that sometimes. Yeah, but I don't know. It's we can more more uh, more magic gender zines. I think would be would be a good a good direction. Yes, Garrison should write them, and so should you. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.